Hello, welcome to Overmorrow's Library, a podcast series for the Center of Contemporary Art in Geneva. Last time, we said goodbye at the end of a world. We were at the end of the world of antiquity, in the years of the fall of the Western Roman Empire. Today, we will join forces with a special guest to look at an earlier transformation, again, a passage between worlds, which took place at the very beginning of the Roman Empire. We are here today with historian of Roman history, writer and poet, Francesco Strocchi. And we're going to use his help to examine the momentous transformations in everything, in everyday life, thought and society that took place around the time of Julius Caesar. So in the first century BC, just as Rome was turning from being a republic to becoming an empire. Francesco, thank you for coming on our podcast. Thank you for inviting me. So for our listeners who might not be uh, very familiar with Roman history, let's give a brief general picture of what the world was like in the Mediterranean, or Rome especially, in the first century BC, at the time of Julius Caesar. How did people live? What was Rome like? Rome was a mess, I think, in the sense it was a very big town for that time. And people somehow, they need to cope with their daily life. And coping, I think, is the key question, which isn't partly difficult to explain. Life expectation was very short. And in order to have a perspective and in order to to have a future, which was also related to having an income, um, having money and having some properties, people have very little alternatives, especially in a town like Rome, which was basically about having a career in the army. So that's the first things we have to think about when we face the idea of what could have been, what life could have been in Rome at that time. Um, Obviously, life was slightly different in the province uh, because provinces were obviously controlled by by Rome and then people have their different kind of life. However, the main issue was also related to slavery. The workforce was very easy to to get to was very easy to to have on board, especially for um, senators and for landers and 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 therefore, in order to have a job and in order to have an income, if you were a man in your or a boy in your adolescent or when you were around fifteen to eighteen, obviously you had to consider to become a soldier. And um, I just want to focus on this because uh, um, the alternative could have been become a peasant or about you, you don't exactly become a peasant, you were already one. But again, in that case, you will be part of a farm and very rarely you have your own farm. So you were still somehow employed by, by a, um, a, land, a landlord who obviously did prefer to have slaves instead of Roman citizen on italics for the obvious reason that slaves they were absolutely they don't cost anything. So I, I, I say that that perspective um, I mean 
the social issue at the time of the Roman Republic at, in that specific period, which was the end of what is what we now know is the end of the Republic, was basically how to cope and how to get along with life in a big town like Rome and in the organization like the Republic. You've mentioned the army, and yeah. one of the main characters in this transformation is a man of the army in, in a certain way, Julius Caesar, the most famous of all emperors, to the point that we say still Tsar for the Russians or Kaiser for the Germans. They're yeah. all words derived from Caesar. Who was he? He was certainly a genocidal man, in a sense that he perpetrated war crimes to our standards. He was a writer, he was a politician, was many things at once. How would you describe Julius Caesar? Caesar was, was a bookish general, um, which is a definition I particularly like. It tells a lot about Caesar, um, a character which is very difficult to define properly. I think it's very difficult to define him, obviously, with the hindsight of the scholarship and, and the, the history of the world that, that came after Caesar. The idea of the chief in command, the idea of the general, the idea of the emperor, the idea of, you know, the head of state. And, and Caesarism is, is casting a shadow on Caesar as well. So it's very difficult to look at Caesar and understand who he really was. That's the first thing to say. Um, Obviously, the second thing, in my opinion, is uh, the complexity of the character. I mean, we are talking about an aristocrat, uh, someone who spoke, obviously, Greek, and, and uh, which was the, the language of the intellectual people in, in the Roman times. And we are talking about someone that he has, he was a, a soldier, someone who fought and, and, and wanted to fight the battle he was engaged into. I say bookish because um, he had this sort of um, capability, sort of attitude, uh, which was entirely Caesarian in a way, which was the fact to keep on being a, a scholar, an intellectual, even while fighting. There is an expression in Latin, which is intertela volantia, which means that he was able to write letters, to dictate letters, to write poetry and, and books about language and, and uh, how to speak Latin, for instance, while, while fighting. So the issue with Caesar is about how to, to understand the character, uh, the core of the character, but probably the core of his character, what is exactly this complexity. Why so? I think probably because Somehow, the Roman aristocracy, because it came from a family, with the Julian family, was very well known. They were among the founders of Rome. Um, it was somehow a sort of hub of all the, the cultural issue and all the cultural um, sensibility of the time, which was about not just speaking Greek, but it was about what do we do of the Latin heritage of Rome. How could we possibly finally express a Roman culture? And he was probably the beacon of the Roman culture in the sense that he was one of the first to understood that was there was finally time to sum up and to understand from a from an inner point from an insider 
what Roman, Roman culture was at that time. And um, that's why I think it's a little bit more than simply a general or the first emperor. It was bookish and it was the bookish general. So the question is, what was Roman culture at the time? What was the, the culture of the late Roman Republic? This is also a way for us, I think, to approach what will become the culture of Rome. What we often associate with Rome is the imperial time. But at the end of the Republican time, and later we will look at what it means to change from one yeah. to the other, but what was the l cultural atmosphere? Well, I think it's important to, to start mm. saying that um, the contemporary, the contemporaries, obviously they were not aware of being contemporary in a way. So they didn't know they were in a transitory period and they didn't know what culture was because they didn't have, so the hindsight we might have to understand it. However, culture probably at that time was exactly um, the idea of, was exactly at a sort of crucial moment, which was, it was time, as I said before, to understand what being a Roman meant. And one of the intellectuals at that time, which was again a soldier, was Varro. We tend to think that Cicero was somehow the most important intellectual and writer and philosopher, although he was not exactly a philosopher, more a, uh, um, an orator. But actually, Varro was that kind of intellectual which tried to, who tried to put together the Roman culture on every aspect. He wrote about, he wrote satires, he wrote about language, Latin language. He wrote about customs. He wrote about history. And I think he wrote about books. And he, he started also writing, and he wrote actually, but unfortunately most of it is lost, um, novels and, and tales about, um, you know, life of, uh, Roman people and, you know, captured in a very uh, funny and satirical way. So, um, what was Roman culture? I mean, it's a nice question, but it's obviously very difficult to, for them, for the contemporaries to understand what it was. It was, again, something related to complexity in the sense it was time for them and it was the right time for them at the end of the of the first century BC, because they have conquered the world, to understand. So what I want to emphasize is the fact that they were in the process of understanding themselves. It is very interesting, I suppose for your post podcast, to point out that this process of understanding happened in a moment of transformation, which was a very deep transformation. The core of the transformation was about institutions. So they had institutions. They worked very well when Roman was a town that was at the head of Italy, of the regions around Latium, which was the Roman region. But what about, what do we do with these institutions when we are governing and we are leading the whole Mediterranean world. 
And, and is this the moment when you pass from the Republic to the Empire, right? You pass from the Republic to the Principate, to be precise. But again, those, this is a definition of, um, that, that the historian gave to the period. It's interesting. I mean, I would probably focus on um, just a couple of seconds on, on the etymology. When we're talking about empire, we are thinking about, you know, the empire, that the British empire, the, the Spanish empire, or the Ottoman, or Genghis Khan empire, or whatever. Imperium means, basically, was a kind of power that was given from the Senate or from the Republic to a peculiar person in order to, to lead uh, an army and in order to have an extra power to conquer or to manage a particular situation. So, um, and the problem was exactly that. And the problem started with the Gallic campaign, for instance. It was not enough to give the head, the proconsulate, the head of the, the office for just one year to Caesar to conquer Gaul. He needed more than one year. And to lead a whole region, to conquer a whole region, to administer a whole region, probably one year wasn't enough. I quote, I'm, I'm saying one year because the consulate lasted one year. And all the offices in, and, 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 and all the magistrates in Rome um, held the, the, the office for no more than one year. So when we think about the empire and the imperium in Rome, we have to think exactly about this. The fact that uh, the previous institution of the Republic were not enough beyond their names to lead and to to make the administration of such a complex and very extended dominion on the Mediterranean Sea and, and on the Mediterranean lands. So um, that was the main problem. So the institutions were too little for that. And then Caesar then didn't become the emperor of Rome. He didn't even become the king. He was in charge, effectively. He was in charge, like, maybe like Deng Xiaoping, in a way. No, maybe a little bit in China, in the Republic of China. Uh, as you know, he didn't have any real... But And Caesar actually, he reiterates his consul and he became dictators. And dictators, again, when we, when we hear the word, it, it sounds a bit too much. Obviously, what's that dictatorship sounds? In Rome, dictatorship was, was an extraordinary office. But the times were extraordinary. I'll give you an example. The fact that he decided to change the calendar, it's, it's, it's not something that a consul in one year could do. It's something that needs an extra power. And um, the fact that in order to calm down the situation in Rome, he personally decided the next, the name of the consuls to come, holding election, but without holding election. So election, there were no a formality under Caesar. It tells a lot about the fact that in order to implement the reforms or what he wanted to implement, he needed to have uh, uh, consistency in power and dictatorship 
was one of the of the of the office. They were already available in the um, in the Roman Republic, but he decided to to use it for more than six months, more than one year. It was at the end perpetual, and it, only thanks to to this assumption, he managed to um, to set up several reforms. One of them was the one of the calendar which was crucial at that time. But then Caesar never really saw an extended period in power because he was murdered by the other senators one day. And that ignited a civil war, which saw various parties and various people uh, taking leading roles. At the end of this civil war, Caesar's nephew, Octavianus, became the real first emperor of Rome. One of his enemies was Mark Anthony, famous, dashing, charming, beautiful, uh, a very powerful soldier. He lost and he was killed. And to a certain extent, with him also an alternative future of the Roman Empire, of the Roman world and of the entire Mediterranean world was lost. Can you tell us a bit more about, here we are playing Fanta history, what Mark Anthony embodied and what kind of future was lost when he lost? Well, I mean, to simplify a bit, we can say it was West against East. It was the idea of the Republican institutions, which Octavianus at that time, obviously, who became Augustus, embodied. And on the other side, there was Antonius, uh, who was married maybe not officially, but married to Cleopatra, who was an Egyptian queen. She was considered a goddess. And obviously the husband would have been considered a god. And it's very interesting to see that in terms of propaganda, the, the, the cards played by Octavianus were exactly that. So um, be aware Romans, be aware Italians that Try to, try to imagine what could happen if Antonius would become emperor or princeps. We will have a queen, we will have a royal family, something that we cannot, this is not what the Roman tradition is about. So it was West against East. It was Italy against the rest of the world. And the rest of the world was Egypt and the Far East. Um, not just uh, an Egyptian monarch, but was also Persian maybe monarch or uh, the Parthian monarchy. So the, the fear was was related to the potential invasion of habits of cults that were related to royal families and a queen and a king, something that for the Roman institution was totally unbearable in terms of what they represent for a Roman citizenship and for being Roman. Everything that you've said and that I've said, we can say because we have sources, because we have something from antiquity that reached us, telling us what we got uh, and telling also what we lost. But a lot of sources we lost. There's many books that never reached us. And in a way, who knows what kind of history we would write today if we had them. 
Could you tell us more also about what we didn't get from that time, when a world changes a lot, is lost in the process? According to, to some statistics, we, we don't have the 92 to 94% of uh, Latin literature and Latin writings of that time. I think the numbers speaks by itself. I mean, 90%, it's a lot. Which, you know, probably means that it, the historians, we as historians, we, we must be creative in a way and um, kind of novelists, maybe. Uh, we have to imagine a lot. And we have to um, try to reconstruct the events, um, which, by the way, are more based on, in terms of historical event, on, on Greek, uh, ancient Greek sources than Latin sources. This is another thing that's quite interesting. Um, we have lost a lot. And what I, I, I think, we have particularly lost the letters. I mean, I think to be able to read through the, the, letter, the, the letter exchange between the protagonist of that time, but also between normal people, uh, between the, the, you know, soldiers and, and peasants and, uh, between soldiers and their family, between peasants and their, and their landlords. I mean, we have lost a lot. That would be really uh, a sort of a tremendously interesting source of information. And I know that you've been rewriting one of these letters. In your next book, you look at one letter in particular that was never, well, which was sent, but then never reached us. Which one? Oh, well, yeah, but, but thank you for mentioning it. It's, it's, your, it's quite kind of you. I mean, yeah, I mean, one of these letters was uh, a letter, not, not just one, I mean, the letter that Caesar's lieutenants like Irtius and, and Balbus and Opius, uh, they were familiar with him. I say familiar because familiaris in Latin means friends, very good friends and collaborators. Uh, they, they wrote to each other what I'm trying to what I wrote, actually, and I'm currently editing, is, is, um, is a novel which is basically a letter that Irtius, uh, one of Caesar collaborator and a consul in 43 BC, after the Ides of March, when, when Caesar was assassinated, Irtius became consul. Irtius wrote to, to Balbus, uh, who was again another very good and very close friend with Caesar. Um, yeah, and what I'm trying to do is exactly what I said before, being something in something between an historian and, and, and a novelist. I try to collect information taken from what they what look like facts and, and mix up with um, creativity, if you want, what I think about the character and about Irtius uh, as a men of the time. To remain on books and also to get to the end of this episode, my usual last question to all our guests is to contribute to the shelves of our library for the day after tomorrow. So would you like please to add a few books, a couple or more, to the shelves of our library? But you mean it does it work even when when the the books 
do not exist anymore. That's perfect because our library doesn't exist. Okay, so then, then there are, uh, let's say, two books which do not exist anymore. They are lost and they, they didn't get to us. Uh, one is about uh, being drunk. It's a book which is called, uh, or an essay maybe, we don't know anything about it. We know just the title. The title is De Sua Ebrietate, uh, and about being drunk, which has been written by Antonius, notoriously a drinker. I think, uh, I, I love the character. I think Antonius Antony, uh, Mark Antony, uh, was certainly um, not only a main protagonist, but was a very clever boy and someone that took life less seriously. I think if you are able to to write a pamphlet about being drunk, I think it does a lot. It's not just about changing history or changing the narrative of history about yourself or episodes about yourself, but it's about a way of depicting yourself in a totally different way with probably some dose of, of, of irony and um, which is, in my opinion, remarkable. And the other book is a bit more serious. It's Caesar's book, which is called The Analogia. We have only fragments. It's a book about Latin language. And um, why on earth Caesar decided to write a book on grammar while he was fighting in Gaul? And I think the reason uh, was very simple, but I, or it seems to us simple, but obviously it's entirely a deduction is the fact that probably he realized that Latin needed to be more simple and needed because it needed to be spoken by not just Romans but but even by Gauls. And to do that you need to have some sort of uh, walking book or some sort of um, a sort of schoolish kind of book about uh, how to which kind of word to use in order to make yourself clear and and fluent in, in Latin, even if you are not a native in the language. And I think this is a big miss, I suppose. The other book, probably this last, is, is uh, Intellectual Life in Roman Republic, which is um, a book written by Elizabeth Rosen, um, a scholar who unfortunately died in her 40s and it's about the intellectual life during the late Roman Republic. Uh, it's, it's an important book. It is important because finally focus on the connection between the intellectual world at that time, between the intellectual world and the political one, which was very, as Caesar clearly shows about himself, it was very yeah, very peculiar of that time. So the fact that there was no difference between the political man and the intellectual one. And it's a book that mentioned as less as possible Cicero. And it's just an important thing to say, because if we just forget Cicero for a bit, we understand there is something else around it and still a lot to discover about the Roman culture at that time which was again at the end of the first century BC. Francesco, thank you so much for having contributed to the shelves of our library and to our podcast. And dear listeners, thank you for having been with us today again. I hope I will see you also next time, still here on Overmorrow's Library from the Center of Contemporary Arts 
in Geneva. Goodbye.